0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: You'll be strangers. Come for the festival, eh ya? Yes. Got a place to sleep it off yet? Go around to Rager's house, he's got rooms. But you'll have to hurry, it's almost the red hour.
2: This, uh, festival, it starts at 6 o'clock. Tula!
1: These folks come for the festival. Your daddy can put them up, can't he?
0: You're from the valley.
2: We've, uh, just arrived.
0: My father will be glad to put you up, though. It's right over there.
2: give her a shot. It'll calm her down. Trust us. You didn't even try to bring her back. What kind of father are you? Good morning, London. It's Thursday, September 4th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right.
3: Fade into color, color into black and white, under the clothes, everything will be alright.
2: And welcome to our show today, yes, the students are back on campus, and parking is once again a great challenge here on, 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 on campus. What you heard in our opening today was really nothing to get too concerned about. That was just Frosh Week on Planet Beta 3 from an episode called The Return of the Students, at least as it might have been seen and reported by some of the people in what I like to call the, the prude community. It's Frosh Week here at Western University, and something is missing, and that's the Frosh edition of the Western Gazette. It's gone, you see, because if anyone had seen it, they might have gone berserk like the people in the scene in our opening today. On last week's show, as you may recall, we spent the second half of the show exposing the sheer outrageous reactions of London's Megan Walker to this university's frosh edition of the Western Gazette, which is why there isn't one this week. So for those of you new to the city of London, because of your attendance at Western, you should be made aware that when you're in this town, you're subject to the personal morality standards of this city's moral guardian, namely Megan Walker who, in addition to her duties as the executive director of the London Abused Women's Centre, seems to have made her mission in London for many years now to guard this community against all things heterosexual. And now it appears also against alcohol and maybe drugs, although she did call for the safe use of drugs, as we mentioned last week, eh, Robert? Yes. Now... In her way. In her way, yeah. <laughs> now, what's amazing is how all the officials in the city, from those at City Hall to those in the police department to those who run the university, all seem to, I don't know, worship her as the Virgin Mary or something, like to someone to whom sex is foreboding and to whom all discussions of or enjoyment of uh, completely consensual sex between completely consenting adults is somehow unacceptable and intolerable. Looked into this issue much deeper. It's a much bigger issue than Megan Walker. But I'd like to share with our listeners today a few of the other media reactions to Gazettegate, as Andrew Lawton called it over at AM 980, and some of the history and philosophy behind what Megan Walker and others like her are actually doing. So, you know, where I was greatly disappointed with the media coverage of the event last week, I was pleased to learn that not everyone shared the same views on Frosch Week. The original Frosch edition of Western Gazette is not on the stands here to greet you because of Megan Walker's objection to three specific articles in that Edition, We read most of those articles on our last week's show, and you can now find them entirely online in full context on our extras page associated with last week's show at uh, www.justrightmedia.org. More about that in a few minutes. Interested in the National Post Reaction... Interesting column by Robin Urbach. Get ready for the worst time of the year, Frosh Week, she writes on Thursday, August 28th, in reaction to what happened here on campus. And I thought her essay was worth a look at here. She says, school hasn't even started yet, and we have our first on-record apology coming from the hollows of one of uh, one of the Canadian campuses. Last week, Western University student paper, the Gazette, published an article about how to snag a date with a teaching assistant. The piece was meant to be satirical, which is generally lighter fluid on a university campus, and included suggestions to Facebook stock and get sexy by loosening a couple of top shirt buttons. The most lewd line in the piece was a reference to oral sex, and that's it. Megan Walker, the executive director of the London Abuse Women's Centre, called the piece unbelievable. The center has worked with Western University for many, many years in promoting safe space, and this just flies in the face of everything that we've done, she said. Readers on social media called the article sexist, disturbing, and accused it of normalizing rape culture. Even Western's provost expressed her disappointment in the piece. In response, the Society of Graduate Students and the Teaching Assistance Union at Western plan to hold a panel discussion sometime in the fall. That should be fun, eh, Robert? Looking forward to it. (laughs) God forbid any of these people accidentally watch a South Park episode, or an episode of the Big Bang Theory, as we pointed out last week, or worse, reread an innocuous-seeming character of the childhood-favorite Wayside School book series in which which class daredevil Ron orders the mushroom surprise from the cafeteria and subsequently falls in love with teacher Mrs. Jules. Isn't that an example of legitimizing inappropriate student-teacher relationships? Does the Mushroom Surprise story make light of actual instances of date rape? If that book is in Western's library, it should be removed immediately, she writes. After initial resistance, the editorial board at the Gazette capitulated to the pressure and issued an apology saying it will remove the offending piece from newsstands and its website. Welcome to school kids. It's going to be a great year. Though there will be plenty of other examples of manufactured outrage this school year, the notable aspect of this one was how quickly the university administration got involved. Indeed, Provost and Vice President Academic Janice Deacon seemed to exhibit no hesitation in admonishing the Gazette for its timidly edgy piece, saying the time is long past when these kids when these kinds of articles can be defended as being either satire or humorous. That passage of time must be somewhere between last September and now, because as Gazette editor Ian Bokoff affirmed, the paper runs this sort of stuff every year. Volunteers are prohibited from touching anything with alcohol imagery on it. Nevertheless, university administrators seem on especially high alert this year following the controversies of last, when groups at a couple of schools were caught reciting pro-rape cheers. The chants were indeed repugnant the type of thing you'd expect from a group of barely adults away from home the first time, and yet were taken as evidence of a campus culture that legitimizes actual sexual abuse. This year, the administration at St. Mary's University, one of the universities where the chant was recorded, has rebranded Frosh Week as Welcome Week, and is imposing a two-day mandatory training session during which participants have to sign a so-called Charter of Responsibility. At Western, orientation leaders must sign a pledge to adhere to the university's no alcohol frosh week policy and also to abstain from discriminatory or offensive cheers. They are required to abide by a few other behavioral conditions, the most extreme being that volunteers are prohibited from touching anything with alcohol imagery on it. That means if students moving into dorms pack their belongings in LCBO boxes, volunteers cannot help them move in. Sam Kilgore, Western University Student Council Vice President, student events told the National Post the policies to prevent a photo that could be spun disparagingly and negatively portray academics at Western. Can you even believe that, Robert? I'm shaking my head here. Can't you see? Yeah. <laughs> More damaging to Western's reputation, I would think, she says, is an administration so preoccupied with perception that it forfeits common sense. Frosh week has become that awful time of year when someone inevitably does something dumb, catalyzing a nine-month fallout of excruciating analysis, open panels, and sensitivity workshops. School hasn't started yet, but we're well on our way. Good luck, class of 2014-2015. This might hurt. And that was Robin Urbach. I fully agree with Robin's conclusion that more damaging to Western's reputation is an administration so preoccupied with perception that it forfeits common sense or good sense peppered with a little humor, as both Robert and I agreed last week. If the intention of the administration to acquiesce to Megan Walker's unreasonable arguments and demands was to turn attention away from the controversy, all that's been accomplished is to turn the controversy into a less desirable one, a scenario in which both sides come out looking bad. All of the offending Gazette articles, as I said, which have been officially removed from the Gazette's website, can be viewed as they originally appeared in full context on our own site, justrightmedia.org, accompanying our broadcast last week, along with an audio link to the CJBK interview featuring Megan Walker, from which I quoted last week, and also links to two previous episodes of Just Right, aired in uh, 2007 about the same subject, Megan Walker versus the Gazette. Another reaction I heard was uh, Andrew Lawton on AM 980. And uh, this was just like an hour after we got off the air last week, Robert. I got home and I turned on the radio, and there he was already talking about it. And he he said he reviewed the articles and saw them as more stupid than offensive, not filth, just fluff. Quote, it didn't even earn the right to be called filth, he said. <laughs> and he quoted editor Ian Bokoff, saying he would stand his ground against the complainers, yet within 24 hours issued an apology on behalf of the paper. I believe he should resign, not because the content was offensive, but because it was boring, says Lawton. It wasn't offensive, stupid, and poor taste. Will it cause others to behave as suggested? No. If your level of self-control is so weak that an article in the Gazette will make you do it, you shouldn't be on university in the first place, he said. Andrew's main complaint was that the articles were not funny by his standards. He then argued that if you're going to be offensive, it should be a good offense. Your point should be made. If so, he, Andrew Lawton, would stand behind it. Satire plays off of existing beliefs, prejudices, and norms, says Andrew. We have a reinforcement now that the editor has no backbone. He, the Gazette editor, says the story has become a national one. If you stand by it, then stand by it. All it reminds me of is the Gazette is a Bush Bush League student newspaper. He should be apologizing not for the articles being offensive, but for them not being actually funny, says Lawton. It would be a lot more defensible if it were clever. Well, that's an interesting commentary. And yet that's exactly what the first paragraph of the apology actually did say. Quote, The Gazette would like to apologize for our frosh issue. The editorial board of the Gazette worked hard on the publication, and our aim was to put out an entertaining issue for first-year students and Western as a whole. It's clear that we failed to do that, and for that we apologize. And so there you have it.
4: Well, you know, I disagree a bit with Andrew there, because Andrew and ourselves are a little older than the frosh. Yes, and the humor is directed at Frosch, so I agree. to them I think the humor was directed and I think that they found it funny and it as is United. And you know, it's a
2: student newspaper yeah. and, and it's that's where you learn. Mm-hmm. That's where you start to learn, right? Andrew found the article article on drugs as the most problematic. He didn't talk much about that. And he himself made no mention of Megan Walker, though a caller brought her up in the conversation. But Megan Walker and the ideology she represents is precisely what motivated this whole event in the first place, which has now become an important event, given the negative consequences of her actions and public reactions. This is not about Megan Walker, although she's the symbol of it, I guess, or the Gazette, or of being offended, or about safety or violence towards women by men. It's about a very misguided philosophical and cultural trend, one that is promoted by two seemingly opposite political forces, namely radical feminism on the left and right-wing forces who are all very uncomfortable with things sexual or, for whatever reason, religious, psychological, political... And who both manufacture claims of modesty and personal offense as their badge of righteousness, which authorizes them to be the moral guardians of the rest of us. And I call them the prude police, the whole bunch of them. Prude is the operative word here. You know, Funken Wagnalls describes a prude as a person who makes an affected display of modesty and propriety, especially in matters relating to sex. But, you know, that's a bit too mild a term. When you seek to have your own standards forced upon other adults who clearly disagree with you, I think there are stronger words that we could use. So welcome to Frosh Week. And in celebration of Frosh Week, coming up next here is uh, Michael Korn interviewing Atar Khan and Gabby Rodriguez this past Friday, the 29th of August, who apparently must be applying for the job of being the prude police in their communities let's listen in
3: if you don't know what frosh week is it's pretty much summer camp and a lot of different activities including 3d you put your hands on things tangled twisted it's called twisted while at night there's a lot of school-wide activities including dances haunted houses hypnotist shows and a video game chiller yeah a video game chiller
1: oh good god Athar Khan and Gabby Rodriguez are both young. I mean, you left university just a couple of years ago, if that really? Yeah, um, a month ago. A month ago? And how about you? Mine
5: was a year ago. A year
1: ago, okay. Frosh Week. What did you get? You went to Ryerson? Yeah, I went what,
5: to Ryerson. What did you get up to? What did
1: you do in Frosh Week? Oh,
5: uh, I didn't really go to Frosh Week. Why? Um, well, I was I was commuting to school, so right. I didn't really feel like they need to go to Frost Week because I felt like Frost Week is more for people who lived on residence, right. so I never went.
1: So you were too mature and you were working hard. You were probably partying all night long, weren't you? Oh, no,
3: I did go to Frost Week, and then I asked to be um, sat out of the partying part of it. Why? Because I went there to network, as I was told it was going to be, but it turned out it was salacious, obscene, and vile, as you can imagine. That's what life is
1: like, I thought. I mean, that that's what... That's what we do. I mean, mean, some news is like that.
3: I may not be religious, and I may criticize my religion to the very end, but I do have some form of
5: modesty. Wow. What do you think of that?
1: Is he a prude?
5: A little bit. I mean, like, you're about, about what, 17, 18 when you go to university if you come straight out of high school? Like, I mean, a lot of kids' attitudes, like, they want to have fun, they want to meet people, they want to make friends, and Frost Week is a great way to do that because the schools are helping you meet people.
1: Yeah. There, are, there should be limits. So Kids are going to drink too much, I suppose. They're going to have fun. They're going to meet members of the opposite gender, or the same gender, I don't know. They, they're going to enjoy themselves. The problem is some universities have exhibited a certain uh, misogyny, a even violence that's led, led to Frosch Weeks being cancelled. Um, newspapers, university newspapers have had to remove ads and so on. There was a no- well apparently notorious incident um, at the University of St Mary's, I think it was about a year ago. Let's see the clip of that now please. worst thing i've ever seen in the entire world look a lot of the people there are girls half of there are girls they're saying things that are obnoxious but they don't really mean them surely
5: no they they don't mean it like they're just they're saying it for fun and they don't realize the consequences of saying it
1: yeah are, are there consequences? what words can be ugly they were meant to be playful yes if you just read what, what they were saying you know I, i'm a father i said that's that's unacceptable. They don't really mean that. They're they're not going to rape anyone. They're they're not going to look for underage girls. And as I say, at least a third of the people there, I think, were were young women.
3: Well, this is didactic to a certain degree. It is instructive. It is encouraging a certain type of behavior or mindset. Or a mindset, at least. When I went to my Frosh Week, there were girls and guys that were leaders of this Frosh Week that were making hand gestures of masturbation and ejaculation. And it would, be, it, would be, it would be fine if it was just... Whatever that means. It would be fine if they were just doing it themselves, but they encourage everyone to take part. We must all
1: do it. Well, <laughs> I mean, sorry, but the hand gestures... but uh, doesn't mean other people have to engage rape,
3: and indulge. Rape chants, child molestation chants. I mean, when are people... You gonna, heard that at uh, York. Well, uh, not the child molestation chance, but no. certainly rape chance.
1: Well, rape, the, the very discussion, the very word is very emotive and emotional, and we have to be very careful. But it's one thing to say to kids, look, just watch your behavior. It's another to effectively ban frosh and, and, and make it just a, a place where you, you say hello to each other and exchange business cards. I don't want it to be that.
3: Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say rape chance at York. I don't want to say that. I'll retract that statement. Oh, but that was quick. There was. It, it was extremely salacious, okay. to the point where you think that they're almost but encouraging it. But on. that's
5: not the only thing that happens at frost. Like those, those are like really bad situations. Like those are the bad apples that happen. Like you can't just turn around and say, "Oh, there's no frost for anyone." Mm. Like you just have those people who do things like that. They should be punished for that, and then you know, don't ruin it for everybody else. Yeah.
1: You you said rape chance, and and then you took that back and said, no, it was salacious. But salacious, it depends on on the person's interpretation. When I went to university before you guys were born, in 1977, I was a bit shocked, actually. I was a sort of, uh, I don't know, lower middle class kid from a suburb, and I I was stunned by what was going on. But you didn't really have to take part in it. And it it was all over in about three or four days, and kids got on with their work. Are we overreacting? There is this tendency today to overreact and be very PC.
3: I think there's a tendency to not overreact and not react at all. I'm really glad someone took a video of this chant, because yeah. otherwise it would just go completely unnoticed, as it has been for a very long time on campuses all across this country. Yeah. Last few seconds to you.
5: Uh, you, just, you don't see all the people who make their best friends from university, from Frosh Week, from the first days in Frosh Week. Like Those are the positive things, too, that come with Frosh Week.
3: You can have that without having all this salacious behavior.
5: Well you can't you can't punish everyone for a couple bad apples
1: ah, a couple of bad apples I am um, I'm middle-aged so I can look back on young people and say I don't really care very much thank you very much indeed
2: Um, you know I can't I can't say that I share Corrin's lack of concern for this schools school generation, to having to deal with the prude police I do care um, Deep down, it's all based on on a deep hatred of men, and that's where it stems from. I have grandkids, two of them boys, who may one day be going to university to say nothing of the negative social consequences this anti-sex attitude actually has on society. I don't think it's healthy. The feminists who resort to these arguments are culturing what they call a rape culture a term that certainly does not apply in a free capitalistic society. Unlike what we just heard from Atar Khan and Gabby Rodriguez, or from Megan Walker and her rants about the gazette frost edition. When Khan says that the chants are didactic, i.e. intending to instruct, he's just plainly overreacting to the point of silliness. But on this point, Megan Walker agrees. In her quoted comments by CFPL-AM 980's Craig Needles on August 25th, Walker disagreed with the Gazette editor's claim that I don't think any reader will legitimately take this as a promotion of stalking. This is not satire, says Walker. This is something students will read and think they're given the okay to do these things. Just totally irresponsible. I'm really disturbed that no one has come out and spoken out against these articles which means that something else is motivating these folks, and it's not modesty. When the fear is about chance, like the Gazette spoofs we discussed last week, you know, if, that, if that's salacious, lustful, loot, or obscene, this is pure, pure prudery we're talking about, particularly when combined with so-called modesty. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you may recall, Robert, I did a, a, an article, or an article, we, we did a show on on Stephen Harper and the government's plans to bring the anti-prostitution bill in. And I looked up some information and found some fascinating, uh, very credible information in, of all places, Hustler magazine. And we had an article there that I read on the air a couple weeks ago from a woman who formed Prostitutes Anonymous. And it wasn't particularly a flattering picture on the sexual scene, which was really interesting. found another one while I was looking there in the same magazine, an editorial entitled Cry Rape, Feminist Crime Against Women where author Renee Denfield offers a fascinating history into the origins of how feminism, once a movement for equal rights for women as for men, turned into something quite sinister and anti-women of all things. And she tells an interesting story, uh, basically I just summarize it quickly, about a about a woman named Sarah S, a professional paralegal who on her daily you know walk to work one morning she gets whistled at. By some construction workers she's waiting for a bus and she finds herself in a conversation with a young man and he he, he you know he tries to make a, a play on her asks her out for a drink and stands close and says he'd like to have a little more than a beer she just makes excuses and leaves and says see you later later that day one of her senior partners at her law firm congratulates her on her on her work and and gives her a pat on on the rear and then come evening After a quiet dinner with her boyfriend of eight months, Sarah felt tired as she relaxed on the couch. Moving beside her, her boyfriend rubbed her shoulders and nibbled her neck. She didn't feel like having sex. It had been a long day. But her boyfriend seemed excited and affectionate, so she decided to go ahead. Maybe she'd get into it once they started, she thought. As it happened, she was right. Pleasantly exhausted, she closed her eyes. Her boyfriend pulled the blankets around them both and gently stroked her hair until she slept. Sarah S. has just been raped, writes uh, Renee Denfield. The construction workers who whistled at her raped her, as did the man at the bus stop who made a suggestive comment, according to a pamphlet circulated by Pennsylvania Swarthmore College, which defines verbal harassment and inappropriate innuendo as rape. She narrowly escaped being raped again by her boss. So writes... Carol Pritchard authored of Avoiding Rape on and Off Campus. Pritchard calls unnecessary touching a form of sexual harassment akin to rape. And when Sarah had made love with her boyfriend, she was assaulted for the fourth time that day, according to Robin Morgan, editor of Ms. Magazine and author of Theory and Practice, Pornography and Rape. Morgan writes that rape happens anytime sexual intercourse occurs when it has not been initiated by the woman out of her own genuine affection and desire. Since Sarah didn't initiate sex, well, that was rape even though she didn't know it. This is exactly the definition, Robert, that everyone's operating on today. Publicizing rape definitions as varied as these is the mission of a separatist faction of feminists whose magazine, book, and newspaper reports are derived from a handful of studies that take the legal definition of rape and stretch it to produce stats that support their radical ideology. These activists believe women should cease all intercourse with men, whether sexual or social. Exaggerating the parameters of the single most prevalent male crime against women is a tactic designed not only to change the way men and women relate, but to wreak havoc inside the women's movement itself, where the emotional sensationalism of male bashing and separatism almost eclipses the relatively assimilative issues of equal pay, opportunity, and choice. Two studies, one by radical feminist Diana Russell, author of The Politics of Rape, and the other by University of Arizona professor Mary P. Koss, are the primary sources behind the most notorious cases of inflated rape statistics. Russell's study, completed in 1984, concluded that 44% of the 930 women she surveyed were victims of rape and attempted rape. Now what she gets into here is how throughout the whole the whole um, process of putting them through the questionnaires, that all the questions were leading, and they weren't, And no one was allowed to use the word rape during the questions. You couldn't say that you were. It was up to the researchers to decide to use that word. And she writes, If a researcher has to convince a woman she's been raped, how meaningful is that conclusion? Asks journalist Stephanie Gutman, who extensively researched costs Ms. Magazine study for Reason Magazine raising the issue that Koss' uh, questions were geared towards obtaining a predetermined conclusion. Despite the questionable methods behind these studies, mainstream media sources have reported Russell and Koss' rape findings as fact. Their stats have been published as accurate by high-profile magazines Time, Newsweek, Glamour, and Seventeen, and many respectable mag- institutions accept them. Now, the interesting thing is I've heard some of these very same stats being used by Megan Walker. And and apparently it completely conflicts with the stats being produced by the Federal Federal Bureau of Justice, who interviews nearly 100,000 people biannually. In 1989, they determined that one out of every 1,000 women were victimized by rape or attempted rape, including reported and estimated unreported assaults. Based on, on a decade of research, they estimated an American woman's lifetime likelihood of rape and attempted rape was roughly 1 in 12 the figure is undeniably frightening, but a far cry from one in four. But extreme stats have a media impact, and Koss and Russell have an agenda to push. That of redefining rape out of the arena of criminal assault and into consensual sexuality. This is the goal of feminist separatism. Violence is male, the male is the penis, violence is the penis, uh, or the sperm that ejaculates from it, writes feminist separatist Andrea Dworkin in her book Pornography, Men Possessing Women. Dworkin uh, maintains that all men are rapists and not to be trusted. Sexual fun and sexual pleasure, she claims, are inseparable from brutality. In their effort to push their agenda of hatred and distrust of men with lies and false panic, feminist separatists undermine the real horror of rape, whose shattering violence they dilute with a smokescreen of numbers that by including not only consensual sex but non-sexual activity become meaningless. The trauma of victims of actual rape has become a tool to promote political-motivated, moralistic crusades, victimizing the sufferers once more. And how true that is. You know, there was an article in the Free Press just uh, day before yesterday where date-safe program stresses clear consent. And this is happening here on campus. And this is a fellow named Mike Dahmertz. And uh, he was asked, what do you think of Western Gazette's recent frosh issue? What's the, income, what's the impact on incoming students? And he, ri- and he responds, unfortunately, sometimes people write satire, comedy, not realizing that just to say something shocking doesn't mean it's humorous. You could say to someone, what's humorous about sexual assault? And they'll go, well, there's nothing humorous. So when people try to tell a rape joke, what they're trying to do is shock people. But what they're actually doing is desensitizing people to the cause. And I'm going, what is he talking about? There was no such thing in any of those articles. And, you know, you can go back in the history of Megan Walker, the kinds of things that she's been supporting as part of this philosophy. She supported the outrageously offensive anti-prostitution bill, where it's okay to sell sex, but you can't buy it. I mean, you know, women good, men evil. Her opposition to perfectly okay and legitimate sex shows held at London's Western Fair, not once, but several times. You remember that? Her opposition to that auto car ad in the London Free Press, uh, run by Dale Workle Used Vehicles, Strathroy, in 2011, because it had the slogan, you know you're not the first, but do you really care? And Megan went nuts on that one. And she had and her outrageous rant against a fashion ad that ran in the Free Press, uh, it was uh, March 28th, M Magazine, and on that day she wrote a letter to the editor, the article Hot Babes on Hot Bikes, with the pop-out heading, Whether your ride is a hog, a chopper, or a rice burner, check out these new 2008 models. And the girls aren't bad either. Is misogynist and does nothing to further an understanding of women's legitimate role in society. And she added in the article, What a Guy Wants, men are asked, What's your favorite underwear to see a girl in? The article is appalling and an assault to women. We are uncertain as to why the newspaper feels it necessary to degrade women this way. End quote. Well, the reason was it was a fashion magazine and they were talking about fashion and clothes. If a woman were asked whether she preferred her man in boxers or briefs, by Walker's standard, except that it never applies to men and the opposite way around, that would be to say that such a question degrades men. You know, it's it's totally silliness. Uh, she's opposed to the slut walk, which was organized by feminists of different political s- stripe. Uh, just on and on it goes. Her 2007 attack on the Western Gazette, her her opposition to the baseball team, the Rippers, remember that? Oh, yes, right. Because that was Jack the Ripper, don't you know? Having, having a team named the Rippers, that's that's rape. And her person, I, oh, I, I could just go on and on, but, you know, she protested that the fresh, weak chance, arguing that they're part of this country's rape culture, and she cited stats that seemed to come exactly from the sources that I was talking about. So, we're going to go to the next break now, and what we're going to hear is from another feminism, from uh, feminist, sorry, Christina Hoff Summers. And I think you'll hear, she, she's written a couple of books, one of them called Who Stole Feminism? And she sort of answers that question in the upcoming clip. And I understand after that you're going to be talking about some of the myths of feminism that will not die. Also written written by, by Chris Christine Hobbs Summers. Yeah. yeah, we'll tackle a few of those when we come back. Okay, we'll be back right after this.
1: Because of your first two books, Who Stole Feminism and The War Against Boys, you got branded as an anti-feminist. Have you ever been unbranded? Are you stuck with that?
0: I think lately it's changed. Uh, I recently won an award uh, from the National Women's Political Caucus for a, an article I wrote about boys in the New York Times, Boys at the Back. And I thought that was gracious of them because they know that I've been critical, not so much of that organization, because that's always been fairly mainstream and made an effort, I think, to to be uh, quite reasonable. But um, so that's that, that was... That was uh, very nice. And um, also, I think someone, they will call me a dissident feminist or a conservative feminist. I don't don't think most people, I've written so much in favor of feminism. I just wrote a book called Freedom Feminism, kind of describing what it should be to attract more men and women, because they can call me an anti-feminist, but then they'd have to call almost everyone. Because if you ask most Americans, are you a feminist, almost everyone says no, hardly anyone it it's it's maybe lower than you know the last study i saw it was like 23 percent of women and 17 percent of men the vast majority say no and there's a, a one poll showed that uh, almost 20 percent thought it was an insult now how can a movement that stands for liberation one of the great chapters in the history of liberty how can that be something that people don't identify with now if you ask um, the president of the National uh, Organization for Women, as someone did. She said, well, it's the media's fault. The media depicts us as angry and humorless and so forth. And what I think is that, um, I, I wouldn't say angry and humorless, but I do think that um, too many self-identified feminists are, as I said before, are fairly hardline. Uh, they're, they seem to be r- willing to believe the worst things about men and um, very dissatisfied with, with our society. And, and I, can't, I do think, a captive to a lot of false statistics about women's oppression. And I think that a lot of young women simply are not, you know, angry at young men. They're rather fond of them. So they they keep their distance. You do not find very many African-American women, working-class women, Latino women as part of the movement. It's largely evolved into a fairly elite white working, uh, right, you know, upper-middle, not upper, but uh, upper-middle-class women's movement. And um, so I'm when i say who stole feminism i'm just sort of talking about the some elites in our university who defined it in very extreme ways it doesn't appeal to many people there have been articles in magazines for young men that say you know colleges to avoid where it's really like hostile environment for for boys where you'll go there and they'll have you know just uh, angry angry women and so forth so i think that's all contributed to the bad name of feminism so i i, I think people would still think i was a dissident in the in, in feminist theory, but um, I, I don't hear the, the attack as often as in the past.
1: Christina Hoff Summers, how do you define feminism?
0: In the best sense, feminism is a philosophy that says that men and women are equal before the law. They deserve the same rights, the same liberties, equal dignity. And it's basically a philosophy of basic fairness.
1: In your book, Who Stole Feminism? How Women Have Betrayed Women, you talk about the new feminism. What is the new feminism?
0: Yes, well, the new feminism emerged... In the, especially in the 80s and 90s, and it's a rather hardline version. I became a feminist in the 70s. I did not appreciate male chauvinism, and I believed in equality of opportunity. However, in the 80s and 90s, especially in, I, as a philosophy professor, I was reading feminist theorists and feminist philosophers, and there, was, there were theories that were so aggressive in their one being rather harshly anti-male, Uh, As I read these textbooks, it was as if they were following the motto, women are from Venus, men are from hell. (laughs) And I didn't become a feminist to denigrate men. And I felt there was almost a reverse chauvinism. You could call it misandry. Instead of misogyny, we had the antagonism to men, misandry. So I took exception to that. And many other things. I found that uh, I, I, I even developed terms that I called myself an equity feminist. An equity feminist wants for women what she wants for everyone. Fairness, basic you know, respect, and, and equality. But uh, the other school I call gender feminism because they believed in what they called the sex gender system. And there were a group of theorists who thought that women were an oppressed class and that the oppression was systemic and that every major institution uh, felt the impress of patriarchy. And we had, it wasn't enough simply to improve the condition of women, it wasn't enough to change laws. The system, the gender system, had to be dismantled. And uh, that led to some very radical proposals that I think very few women wanted. Most women want their rights. They don't. They want to be liberated from the capitalist, patriarchal, oppressive society, if there is such a thing. I mean, there may be places in the world where there are such things, but the United States, I felt that by the 90s, feminism was a great success story. But I didn't find my colleagues in feminist philosophy celebrating that success. It was almost as if things got better for women, they became more resentful and angry, and captive to what, to me, appeared to be a kind of conspiracy theory about the patriarch.
4: And that, of course, was Christina Hoff Sommers, feminist, and I have to agree with a lot of what she said there. And she, particularly her focus of feminism, which is the relationship between women and the government and the courts. And I think people are forgetting the the uh, the history of feminism uh, has has been very long, with very very um. Uh, valid battles, for example, I mean, when, when women weren't declared persons mm-hmm. um, or couldn't vote or inherit or own property. And I think that's probably what she's talking about, the capitalist patriarchy, is that if you're a man and you can invest capital, but you can't as a woman, that's a, that's a problem. And the thing is that all of these things have been addressed to the favor of women. Women are now equal before and under the law. Women are equal in the relationship with the government. Uh, where's the celebrations by feminists? No, what they've done is they've gone and they've turned feminism into an excuse for Marxism. And um, I'm going to do a little bit more about uh, Christina Hoff Summers here now because she was recently um, written up in the uh, Time magazine, September 2nd, just a couple of days ago, 2014, where she had an article uh, expressing uh, f- her, her uh, thoughts on five myths about feminism. And I'm going to tackle the first one here. Is women are half of the world's population, working two thirds of the world's working hours, receiving ten percent of the world's income owing owning less than one percent of world's property. That's myth number one. The facts, according to Hoff, are these oh, Hoff Summers, rather. This injustice, she says, this injustice confection, is routinely quoted by advocacy groups, the World Bank, Oxfam, and the United Nations. It is sheer fabrication. More than 15 years ago, Sussex University experts on gender and development, Sally Baden and Anne-Marie Gertz, repudiated the claim. The figure was made up, they said, by someone working at the United Nations because it seemed to her to represent the scale of gender-based inequality at the time. But there's no evidence. She must have been in the climate change department. <laughs> yeah, but there's no evidence that this is ever accurate and certainly is not today, continues Off Summers. Precise figures do not exist, but no serious economist believes women earn 10% of the world's income or own only 1% of property. As one critic noted in an excellent debunking in The Atlantic, U.S. women alone earn 5.4% of world income today. Moreover, in African countries where women have made far less uh, progress than uh, than in the West and Asian counterparts, Yale economist Cheryl Doss found, Female land ownership range from eleven percent in Senegal to fifty-four percent in Rwanda and Burundi. Das warns that using unsubstantiated statistics, and this goes back to what you were talking about before, mm-hmm. Bob, about the stats that they uh, that they uh, lie about. Using unsubstantiated statistics for advocacy is counterproductive. Bad data not only undermine credibility, they obstruct progress by making it impossible to measure change. And I'd have to add to that, that bad data persists and takes on a life of its own, breeding even more incorrect conclusions. Bad data is taken by government bureaucracies who then breed government programs designed to address the bad data. And government bureaucracies and government programs are almost impossible to get rid of. So the bad data persist. Myth number two. Between 100,000 and 300,000 girls are pressed into sexual slavery each year in the United States. Facts. Can't believe a claim like that was even made. Yeah, (laughs) facts. The sensational claim is a favorite of politicians, celebrities, and journalists. Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore turned it into a cause celeb. Both conservatives and liberal reformers deploy it. Former President Jimmy Carter recently said that the sexual enslavement of girls in the U.S. today is worse than American slavery in the 19th century. I mean, talk about hyperbole. Hmm. Who can actually take anybody seriously when they, when they say nonsense like that? The source for the figure is a 2001 report on child sexual exploitation by University of Pennsylvania sociologist Richard Estes and Neil Allen Weiner. But their 100,000 to 300,000 estimate referred to children at risk for exploitation, not actual victims. This is all by um, Christina Hoff Summers, who I'm reading here. We're talking about a few hundred people, and this number is likely to include a lot of boys. According to a 2008 census of underage prostitutes in New York City, nearly half turned out to be male. A few hundred children is still a few hundred too many. But they will not be helped by thousand fold inflation of the numbers. Here's the third myth. In the United States, 22 to 33 to 35 percent of women who visit hospital emergency rooms do so because of domestic violence. Now, this one I found really interesting. Facts This claim has appeared in countless fact sheets, books, and articles, for example, in the leading textbooks of family violence, domestic violence law, and the Penguin Atlas of women in the world. Penguin Atlas uses the emergency room figure to justify placing the U.S. on par with Uganda and Haiti for in intimate violence. Where, what is the providence? The Atlas provides no primary source. In other words, they made it up. (laughs) But the editor of Domestic Violence Law cites a 1997 Justice Department study, as well as a 2009 post on the Centers for Disease Control website. But the Justice Department and the CDC are not referring to the 40 million women who annually visit emergency rooms, but to women numbering about 550,000 annually who come to emergency rooms for violence-related injuries. Of these, approximately 37% were attacked by intimates. So it's not the case that 22 to 35% of women who visit emergency rooms are there for domestic violence. The correct figure is less than half of 1%. Quite the inflation of stats. Quite the lie. No kidding. I think that's all the time we got uh, for her five myths. Um, There there were two others, but I would uh, direct you to Time Magazine of September 2nd to read more about the other two, which I would just say were one in five college women will be sexually assaulted, Absolute nonsense. And myth number five women who earn 70 cents earn 70 cents for every dollar a man earns for doing the same work. Again,
2: it, it, debunked. It, and issues we've discussed on this show many times in the past. Yes.
4: Um, and, and, and as you mentioned before, and as Christina Hoff Summers mentioned and the, the other people you were talking about, what it does when they lie about the stats and they perpetuate programs based on lies and false data and exaggerate. And redefine words like sexual assault to include unwanted kissing um, and equating it with actual rape. It diminishes the victims of actual rape. Absolutely. And, and I How think that that's the real tragedy. So these Marxist feminists out there are doing nobody favors. So let's cut to, uh, cut to our last clip uh, now. And um, we'll be back with something completely different in a moment.
0: What about women's studies programs? at university well women's studies programs are a mix of uh good and bad and here's why there are many professors of women's studies who are drawn from other fields so they are simply uh, they are historians with an expertise on women in a specific period and you have women who are experts on you know women's psychology or sociology of women or um women's uh you know women writers and those professors give straightforward academic classes. What worries me are the what typically happens in Women's Studies 101, which is feminist theory. You will not, you will rarely, I've never seen a textbook in Women's Studies that I would consider balanced. There may be one, uh, and, and please send it to me if you're out there. <laughs> uh, but what I find is it's sort of the gamut from A to B, the full gamut, I mean, there's a, a very narrow range of views. They will sort of disparage what Equity feminism, the kind of feminism I embrace. they will disparage that. And then there will be these different schools, very arcane, Marxist feminists and Freudian and lesbian separatists or eco-feminists or postmodernists, and so on and on. Uh, but again, very narrow and esoteric and uh, not, just not going to appeal to most people, <laughs> let alone students. So there's too much of that in women's studies there. And, and to put it more generally, in many women's studies courses, the students are almost uh, taught a kind of conspiracy theory about the patriarchy. And they they master a set of statistics, but they are not statistics, they are propaganda. Because and, and this is a harsh thing to say, but I'm going to say it. At the heart of of feminist theory on the campus is a body of egregiously false information. And most of it about how oppressed women are. And how they are being cheated out of their salaries and how they, their their self-esteem is being devastated from all corners and how they are put upon by men and they you know very high chances they will be battered and raped and if that's only if they're not dead from anorexia nervosa in a desperate effort to meet patriarchal standards of beauty
6: It's important. Uh, I hope you don't get mad or anything. But, uh, would you like to make some money? You see, there are these guys. And, uh, maybe you've noticed them in the bathroom. And they're trying to make me pay protection. From what? Well, from themselves, of course, but that's not what they say. They say that they're protecting me and some other kids from, well, mainly you. From me? Yeah, I know that's not true, yeah. Well, at least I think it's not. But that's how I came up with this idea. What idea? Oh, to pay you to be my bodyguard. Maybe some of the other kids could, too. Also, I could do your homework. I'm pretty smart. But at least it's not paying extortion.
4: Not interested. The protection racket. Yeah. (laughs) You know, with the recent invasion by Russia into Soviet Ukraine, uh, sovereign Ukraine territory, everyone is asking what, if anything, should we be doing about it? Now, Canada and U.S. have moved some soldiers and equipment to some of the smaller Baltic members of NATO to perhaps reaffirm the treaty to protect them, should Putin set his eyes a little to the north. But I began thinking, why in the world should we be doing anything other than chastise Russia for military involvement in another state, something the United Nations was supposedly set up to prevent? But about our NATO commitments, I have this to say. NATO, I think, is out of control and may prove to be by its very existence The reason for the next world war, its sheer number of member states being 28 now, almost assures us that at some point in the future, one of them will have military issues with a non-member dragging every other member into the conflict. NATO began as a treaty between Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, and the United Kingdom, and was called uh, the Treaty of Brussels to ensure that an attack primarily by Germany or Russia would be success- successfully repelled. Now, it was thought at the time that the combined strength of these nations was certainly not enough without the involvement of the U.S. And as a result, the U.S. was asked to join. And, uh, and join it did, uh, along with Canada and some other nations, and it became the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. In 1949, the goals of NATO may have been reasonable, I think, following closely on the heels of World War II, but in a post-Soviet world, NATO has grown to be an association of states with little in common, where small states have little or no military contribution to make, and where the usual ties that bind nations which promise to come to each other's mutual defense are weak. Consider that some recent inclusions into NATO are former Warsaw Pact member states, the very states which NATO was banded together to fight prior to the dissolution of the Soviet bloc. Consider that many of the members of NATO have almost nothing to offer militarily. Should Canada be attacked by North Korea or China, what exactly could Lithuania do about it? How about Slovakia? Consider the weak trade ties Canada has with many of the newer members of NATO. Is that worth going to war over? And finally, consider the public opinion of Canada or the U.S. getting into what could potentially be a world war over countries like the Baltic States or Turkey. Or any of the several NATO countries where violent overthrow has been more the norm than the exception. The two major conditions for a treaty, I think, are pledging, or a treaty at least of pledging mutual defense, should be the following. First of all, strategic military significance to the defense of one's own country. I think that should pretty much go without saying. Um, we should enter into a treaty with the United States, obviously, because if the United States fell, we'd be next. So we should have a mutual defense pact. Now, the second one is a strategic or historic trading ties, whereby the uh, the attack on the trading partner would severely adversely affect and potentially destabilize economically one's own country. I would suggest that most NATO countries do not meet these criteria in relation to Canada. So what should we do about the Ukraine? Well, We should realize that we live in a world of warring nations led by capricious men whose motivations for conquest could easily involve us in conflicts we may find very expensive to win. What should we do about the Ukraine? I think we should prepare for the time when some world leader considers us as easy a target as Putin has considered the Ukraine. But that does not, in
2: my estimation, include NATO. Anyway, Bob, that's all I have for this week. Interesting comments, Robert. Uh, Kind of scary to consider that you think NATO might actually be, its existence might be the cause of the next world war. Well, let's hope we don't have another war start between now and next week. We've got to go for this week. Join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into
1: black and white. because when I say this is a feminized country first of all understand that I get it that there are millions and millions of women who are steely-eyed realists and millions and millions of men who are anything but however for lack of a better term I would say that the feminine values are now the values of America sensitivity is more important than truth feelings are more important than facts commitment is more important than individuality. Children are more important than people. Safety is more important than fun. I always hear women say, you know, married men live longer. Uh yes, and an indoor cat also
4: lives longer. <laughs>